Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. Four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Manoj Sinha, the co-founder and CEO of Husk Power Systems. Manoj, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me here. Of course, of course. Well, uh, for, for listeners out there who can't see Manoj, he's got a lot of solar panels in the background there, but it's his wallpaper. Now, Manoj, you have a really interesting story. You have humble beginnings. Tell our audience a little bit about your upbringings. Sure, thank you for that question. So I, uh, I was born and brought up in a state called Bihar in India, a state with roughly 110 million people. And when I was growing up, I was, I grew up in a small town. And while I did have access to electricity, uh, most of my relatives at the time did not have access to any electricity. So I had intermittent power, my uh, own relatives, especially my grandparents home, they didn't have any. So that's the stark difference I uh, grew up saying. My, my father is a mechanical engineer. He worked in a coal-fired power plant <laughs> when I was growing up, when coal did not look like an evil <laughs> commodity back then. Uh, so I was lucky to, to be born in a family of an engineer who worked at a power plant, and therefore I was uh, used to seeing electricity not 24-7, but you know not too bad either. Uh, so I grew up uh, in that circumstance for you know my first 20 years, and during which I also did electrical and electronics engineering from one of the IITs in India called IIT Varanasi. So my graduate degree or undergrad degree was in electrical and electronics. Uh, then I came to the United States uh, to pursue higher education because I really wanted to design something uh, in hardware, microprocessors to be exact. So I came, again, uh, during all these times, one thing to, to realize is I was slightly um, you know, lucky that I had access to some of the resources, the basic resource being electricity that I could study, uh, while my own uh, cousins, they couldn't because they didn't have uh, access to electricity. They, they did study. I mean, my father tells me a story that he studied uh, under lantern, kerosene lanterns, and he made it to a mechanical engineer. So I had no option but to, to <laughs> do at least that, <laughs> maybe better. Uh, so that was my journey, uh, first 20 years of my life in India. And then I came to the US while I was pursuing my master's degree in electrical and, and computer engineering at uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, and then I went on to design microprocessors at Intel Corporation here in the US. Uh, during this whole journey, it, something kept bothering me about my own home state, where hun, you know, back then 70 to 80 million people did not have access to electricity. 
and I saw the benefit and I enjoyed that benefit, right? It changed my personal life. And uh, again, because I was trained as an electrical engineer and the problem existed in my own backyard, if you will, I had no option but to partner with my college friends and some other friends to, to start something to solve this problem that I saw for the first two decades of my life. That's how uh, I started Husk Power Systems. So really not to create a company. It was never to create a company. Husk Power Systems did not exist. When we installed the very first power plant, it was just something that we, uh, we chose to, to solve in, in our own village. And we installed our first power plant. Uh, we wired the village and we powered the first, let's say, 5,200 households. We didn't have a company registered uh, at, at any place. So that's how we started Husk Power Systems. And that's how my journey from uh, childhood to starting the company uh, evolved. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. You know, it seemed like you had an itch. And when you have an itch, you need to, you need to scratch the itch a little bit and then uh, take that up. Now, what separates you from an entrepreneur is you wanted to solve this problem in a, in a socially responsible way. Uh, you know, when, when for, for people listening out there, entrepreneurs, leaders, when this problem seems so daunting in a situation like this, where did you go to? You said you went to a couple of different college institutions. What were you trying to equip yourself with to make sure that you could uh, launch and initiate a project at this scale? So my, my uh, undergraduate study and even the graduate study that I did in the US, which was electrical and computer engineering was never with the intent to solving this problem. I was just trying to move up in my life and career. That was the only selfish intent I had. Uh, but at the back of my mind, that problem uh, where my I'm, I literally saw my own cousins did not do as well in their own lives because of lack of access to electricity. So that, that problem always nagged me and my mind. And since fortunately I did graduate in electrical engineering and this problem, when I looked at uh, the village, it was small, but when I looked at my home state itself, 70 million people without electricity, uh, it was something that I really wanted to solve. I never had ambition in the beginning, so to say, to solve beyond my home state a problem that impacted or adversely impacted 70 million people. So that's how, so the way I look at things in my entire life so far is I see a problem and how to equip myself and, and get a team to solve that problem comes after that. I get really excited about a problem that is large in scale. I don't get uh, daunted by a large problem. Actually, that excites me because it is a problem that impacts millions of billions of people. Um, over a period of time, of course, because of my electrical engineering, I could understand how to solve that problem, electrically speaking, but then how to... So when we did our first plant, as I was talking about, there was no company. But when we did the first plant and solved problem for, let's say, 100 families, then it occurred to, to me that, well, why only stop at 100 families? Why can't we do it for 100 million families? Mm. And that's when you know I, I enrolled myself at University of Virginia. So I wrote the business plan while I was doing my MBA at uh, UVA in the US. So that's when we thought this can be commercialized. We need to make it sustainable and financially viable to be able to impact 
uh, not just people in my home state, but people around at least Asia and Africa. So that's from the business model perspective. And like I was saying earlier, my father used to work in a coal fire plant. I have personal experience of getting fly ash on my rooftop, which is not very pleasant as you are growing up. So in the US, I worked in a semiconductor industry. So I had exposure to solar PV back in 2008 when we started the company. Uh, but solar PV was very, very expensive back then. It used to cost $5 per watt. So we didn't have that much cash in our pockets. So we could not use solar PV despite, technically speaking, knowing the technology. So we went and figured out what can we do at a scale where we can utilize local resources. And since we were trying to solve it for rural people, we can utilize local talent. So, you know, a nuclear power reactor would not be a good solution for that kind of setting. So that's when we discovered biomass gasification system that uses rice husk, which is a byproduct of milling rice crop, which is one of the dominant crops in, in the state of Bihar, which I was talking about. So that's how we actually came across biomass gasification system as a source of generating power, which is renewable. We never wanted to solve a problem, you know, looking at the rear view mirror. So we didn't want to solve it with diesel or, or kerosene or coal. So we, from the very beginning, we looked at renewable source of energy, thought about using solar PV too expensive. So we ended up using biomass gasification system back then. Interesting, interesting. And so it seems like, you know, you just keep working away, keep chipping away, less thinking, more doing. Uh, now, when you started, and, and maybe still, it seems like when you you said you're harnessing the talent, you had to get the local buy-in. You had to get the people to train them to, to learn how to build an infrastructure like this. And then you went back to Darden. What were some of the tweaks that you made to the initial prototype uh, that opened your eyes to say, hey, you know what, this could really scale uh, at, a, at a big level? It's a lot of things, and, and uh, it came both from Darden as well as making a lot, plenty of mistakes in the field. So right. uh, I do have a lot of scars from the, <laughs> the war that, or the battle that we have fought in the field. That's one of the best ways to learn things of doing and not doing both. Uh, at Darden, just figuring out what is the, the business model that can potentially work. So how do you look at customers? How do you set up? pricing and payment process. How do you, uh, like you were saying, how do you recruit and train people so that they can run it cost effectively? We, we are dealing with rural population, which is, again, disposable income is quite low. So you have to really be, uh, really be frugal in innovating any solution that you're coming with. So Darden really helped us think from a multi-dimensional standpoint. And in, in energy business, it's a very capital intensive business and therefore financing forms one of the core elements of making a commercially viable business. So those were the elements that came from uh, Darden or my education at Darden. Now, my professors were very, very helpful. Uh, I, they actually let me <laughs> go to India for a whole quarter to figure out operational processes and some of the financing aspects. So one quarter, I was not even at UVA. I was actually in India <laughs> doing things. In return, I wrote a couple of case studies. Uh, but that's how I learned. And, and again, over the last 12 years, uh, again, I, I want to be very 
honest here. We have made a lot of mistakes. It didn't happen overnight. We, we came up with a business model that we thought would work. It went through uh, several iterations. One of them actually failed completely. So we started with biomass gasification, for example, that has some technical limitations. So it can provide electricity only for, let's say, six to eight hours at nighttime. And we were focused primarily on households back then, back in 2010, for example. Fast forward that to 2013, 2014, one basic element that I missed, despite going to Darden, is that you really need to, to ask your customers or at least figure out what their aspirations are. So people who were happy coming out of six to eight hours of power supply at nighttime, they were totally unhappy in 2014 because they were getting only eight and not 24 seven. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that I have learned over again by making this mistake. Maybe it is a very simple mistake that we shouldn't have made, but it happened. Uh, so and the second was, although we started with biomass gasification system, we kind of overlooked the trend on solar PV pricing. So solar PV, like I was mentioning, was $5 per watt in 2008. It, it went down to less than a dollar per watt in 2014. So those were some of the trends that we or I completely missed. And that led us to really reevaluate the whole business model, the technology mix, the, the way we served our customers and customer mix. Uh, so we went through a major business model pivot in 2015, brought in a new partner for solar, and that's where uh, we launched our hybrid mini grid that contains solar PV for daytime, biomass gasification for evening time, and storage battery for nighttime uh, to make sure that we can deliver what customers aspired for, which was 24-7 power at a reasonable price point. This is the most interesting part of the entrepreneur's journey that I love to, to hear and understand a little bit more. Um, you know, you talk about the scars that you've had. And yeah, have you received more cuts, I guess, uh, mentally? Has it been more difficult from a mental standpoint to continue to persevere knowing the responsibility that you have or has it been more difficult in dealing with customer facing uh, in outside the organization it is the the struggle is uh, continuous in terms of both your own internal uh, framework your mindset you know your team you're, you're carrying a large team and imagine a situation you have done something from 2008 to 2013 and you realize in 2014, half of those things were wrong or not working or wrong. How do you really communicate that with your team? Because you are really leading as, as founder or co-founder. How do you bring them to that realization that it was, we didn't do anything wrong intentionally. We, we missed out some of the things that we shouldn't have. So that was pretty challenging to, to really let our uh, team members know that these are the things that are not working. And there was, uh, uh, you know, not everybody is going to get on board with that, right? Uh, because they have their own viewpoints. And Darden didn't teach me, for example, in this particular case, to how to do, deal with a strike <laughs> of employees. Uh, that did happen at Husk Power Systems in 2014 when we were really shutting down some of these systems because it was not working, it was not viable. It was, there was no way we could have 
taking it forward, right? So if your cost is, let's say, $2 and you cannot get more than a dollar out of that asset, no matter what you do, it's just not going to work. Um, so those were the realization that was one hard to first convince yourself because you went with a full uh, determination to do that. And now you have to change course and then the team. And then how do you really change that course is very difficult. Uh, internally or personally speaking, it was very challenging for me. Uh, personally, I was kind of commuting between the US and India. My wife happens to be uh, in the US. Uh, and we were going through this major shift, right? That means I had to spend nine, 10 months in India uh, in a row. So that was personally challenging to, to be away from my wife. And I was newly married back then in 2013, 2014 timeframe. So it was personally challenging uh, team. From team perspective, it was very challenging. From uh, We did have some in, investment that we secured in 2010 and 2012 early. So late 2012, early 2010, uh, you have to convince your investors that this didn't work. And therefore, we are going to make these shifts, but this is going to work. So it is a multi-dimensional fight that you have to fight uh, with your own, you know, with yourself first, then your team, then your sh shareholders and stakeholders. It was, it has been quite a journey, uh, but it has been worthwhile. Uh, and I'm still excited to keep doing this. Yeah, it takes a lot of perseverance, it seems like. And, uh, you know, I read this great quote the other day, you know, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. What are some of the things, Manoj, that you've done to make sure that, uh, you know, you can persevere uh, and keep a positive mindset? What do you do outside of business? I do a few things. One thing that, that does uh, or has helped me throughout this process is how I define as uh, North Star KPI or the purpose. Why did I really start doing this? Actually, I, work, I worked on Wall Street for four and a half years. Why did I leave that to, to do this? It is much more challenging, um, more rural area and so on and so forth. And North Star KPI for me was to really change and impact lives of hundreds of millions of people in rural parts of uh, India and Africa uh, in a positive way by giving them electrons, access to electrons so that they can use that as a tool to better their lifestyle and to generate extra cash by using some, you know, some kind of machinery if they have uh, shops and things like that. So that has never changed. The technology changed, the business model changed, the, the financing changed. But one thing has, that has remained constant is this problem of lack of reliable power, this problem of uh, unsustainable power that people do use using diesel generator persists and can destroy uh, this planet from climate change perspective. And um, it impacts 3.5 billion people on this earth. 3.5 billion people do not have access to reliable power and therefore they will not reach their full potential. And that purpose is larger than anything else that, at least in my life, um, and that keeps me going. So other than work, what do I do? What I enjoy? Uh, I enjoy outdoors. I, I live in Colorado in the US, so I, I do enjoy skiing. I go camping, hiking, and things of that nature, and I actually 
I have started enjoying traveling. I, I travel a lot for my work uh, from India to Europe to, to you know, Tanzania, Nigeria, and so on and so forth. I actually like that traveling. It's incredible. And, you know, I feel like a lot of social entrepreneurs, especially in the, an affiliation at the Miller Center, you know, they always start with like the theory of change. What's the intention? What's the North Star? And I think you just, you know, you explained it so beautifully and really what impact is, is transforming lives, right? And that's what you're doing. What, how are you measuring something like this? That's always the question, right? How do you measure impact to you personally? How do you measure it? And uh, what changes do you hope to see in measurement, uh, measurements to come? Yeah, so the way we have now framed our business is we are really a rural um, energy ecosystem player. So we don't only provide electrons to people so that they can light their bulbs, switch on their television, but it is also a layer of services on top of electrons that we can provide to enable the economic or spur the economic activities in areas that we serve. So what I mean by that concretely is so let's say we have, uh, you know, we lighted a carpenter shop. So we, what we do is we build these mini grids, which are small 50 kilowatt power plants. We run distribution network up to a distance of uh, two to three kilometers. And we connect any customer that would like to be connected to us. And they are connected on a pay-go uh, service model using a smart meter. So let's say we, we install these this mini grid and a carpenter shop came online or connected to our mini grid more often than not they will have like two or three bulbs or leds maybe a television if they were using a diesel generator as a backup and uh, that's what they do and most of their furniture pieces are done manually right so maybe they are that carpenter shop is doing five furniture pieces per month when we come in, of course, the first thing is to help them switch to, to Husk Power 24-7 power, but we don't stop there. We really come in and intervene in terms of, hey, can we help you transition from this manual process to a more automated process? And that's where the real value added activities are. So this client, all of a sudden, let's say we, he or she buys a, a sawmill or a planning machine that we also credit finance. So we help them finance this equipment. So from this manual process, they shift to this automated or semi-automated process. So from five furniture pieces, they go to 50 furniture pieces in a month. Mm. All of a sudden, the problem statement is no longer, I can only build five furniture pieces. The new problem statement is, hey, how do, you, how do I sell 50 furniture pieces? And we have measured it in terms of uh, what is the net income increase of our client on an average, right? So we serve 6,000 plus uh, MSMEs. So these are micro and small, micro, small and medium enterprises. And our uh, third party survey indicated 30% increase in net income. So I'm not talking about sales only. The net profit that accrues to them after paying for all the cost, including our energy, has increased on an average by 30%. And that's what is really exciting. If we can move the economic needle of these enterprises in a village, the whole village prospers. We have not measured it yet, but our goal is to also measure GDP per capita increase as and when we intervene. Uh, because you know, from the economic model perspective, 
GDP per capita is directly related to energy per capita. So uh, my, my goal is to be able to showcase that as a causal relationship. So as we come in, increased energy consumption per capita, more on the productive side, are we really moving the needle on GDP per capita side? And at least from the net income example that I cited, now it appears to be that way. Wow. So that's one key development impact that we measure and track. Wow, that, that's phenomenal. Uh, so decrease in CO2 emissions, uh, decrease in energy costs over time, uh, decrease in poverty, uh, you know, true trifecta uh, there as an impact organization, outstanding. Um, what about upfront costs? Do these SME micro villages or uh, businesses, do they need financing to afford your energy upfront? Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the loans that businesses use to acquire your energy. Right, so the energy, so we are no different than the utility service that you or I use. So I'm in Colorado, we have Fort Collins utility that provides us electricity. So we can connect to, to the grid any day we want, free of cost, and we get monthly uh, bill right for the energy that we use. In our case, our customer is no different than that. The only difference is they prepay. So they have to prepay on day one based on what expected energy usage is going to be. And let's say they exhaust that credit in 10 days, they can always top up. So we don't charge for equipment. We charge for kilowatt hours that we deliver or our customers use. But we go beyond uh, uh, you know, your typical old school utility. For example, we have time of the day pricing. So we started time of the day pricing that is now used in the US, uh, but we started back in 2015. Uh, so our solar PV is the cheapest energy source in our power generating mix. We actually pass it on to our customers. So if you're using uh, electricity, let's say between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m., we are going to give you a 20 to 25% discount on tariff as compared to if you were using it during nighttime. So that's those are the things that we provide as a method to facilitate higher uses of energy during daytime, more on the productive side. We do credit finance or provide loan for these uh, business customers as they are transitioning from manual to a more automated process. Hmm. So let's say this um, carpenter shop example that I gave uh, didn't have a, a sawmill and they purchased a sawmill that may cost $1,000. That financing we do provide. So they have to only do, a, let's say, $200 down payment and the rest $800 is to be paid over the next, let's say, 12 months. Mm -hmm. So that's how we provide financing for equipment purchase. And electricity is uh, pretty affordable for our customers, when they switch from diesel, if they were using diesel to our electricity, they save roughly 25% in uh, money that they spend on energy uses. Impressive. Uh, so what about that though, that switch? If you are now you know, taking more of the market away from diesel producers, have you ran to any issues with local governance or competitors uh, that have um, been an impediment to your growth, I guess? It's a good question. So diesel, so we are calling ourselves diesel slayer. <laughs> nice. 
so we do come in and our goal has been, like I was saying, one of the North Star KPIs was also not to uh, uh, eliminate any additional ounce of CO2 in atmosphere. So we feel very happy when we eliminate diesel and kerosene from the ecosystem. Having said that, yes, there are diesel generator operator that, you know, and they were making a living out of selling electricity using diesel generators. They do get eliminated. What we have tried to do is uh, we try to uh, recruit them as either a sales personnel on our payroll or an electrician or technician on our payroll. So their their livelihood is not completely eliminated. Mm. On the other hand, a lot of shops, what we saw, uh, and we are seeing that in Nigeria, yeah, in a village that we recently installed a mini grid, I was uh, totally flabbergasted because they apparently were using, there were 300 diesel generators in that village. I couldn't believe that number, but it was true because there are a lot of small diesel generators that a lot of these shops were using on a standalone basis. So they didn't have a third party supplier. Uh, so eliminating that is beneficial to them, right? So now they are thinking about running their shop and not figuring out how to run this diesel generator and purchase diesel and so on and so forth to provide energy to folk to, to then run their shop or whatever business they might have. So we absolutely make it easier for businesses so that their focus is on their core business, not to figure out how to get a secure energy. And you haven't run into any uh, political resistance from this? No, not political, because it, it helps, uh, at least in, in countries that we are operating in. Uh, you know, like for example, India floated the price of uh, diesel or, or petrol equivalent to gas in the US uh, four or five years ago. So it is absolutely, so diesel used to be hugely subsidized up to, I think, 2018 or 2019 in India then they floated the price. So government feels happy because, you know, when the oil is trading at $140 a barrel, the, the pe people who are using it are not going to be happy if the price is floating on the global commodity market. So politicians get happy that their voting bank is not going to get pissed off because the diesel price has just increased. And we see a similar pattern in Nigeria too their economy also is trying to uh, uh, disentangle themselves from total reliance on oil uh, as an economic basis. Uh, to you, Manoj, is it imperative that we make a quick transition to renewable and uh, independent energy, uh, considering everything that's going on in the world right now? It is, it is even more uh, obvious now, right, with the things that are happening uh, in the world that one, uh, this whole 1.5 degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius is not a distant target, right? It has to happen in the next decade or so, and it has to happen fast before it becomes irreversible. And we are, or we have witnessed it in our own, uh, at our own minigrids that we have been running for the last, let's say five years in the state of Bihar and UP in India. We used to get flooding of, let's say, three feet of water um, accumulation in maybe two to three years. And that was a frequency. The, in the last two or three years, I would say it has been occurring every single year. So in front of my own eyes, the villages that we have been serving for the last 10 years, 
when the frequency of flooding was, let's say, three to five years, is now every year. Uh, and the level of water too. So when we built our sites, the the panels and the control rooms are ele elevated to, I think, three to four feet above the, the ground. That was based on 10 years flooding record. Right? So there was no flood that exceeded that level. Guess what? At 20 of our sites, the flooding level is now at five to five feet plus. So those are the things that are happening now and we need to counter that. Otherwise it will be too late. So those are the things that we see uh, affecting uh, more disproportionately in the rural areas because they have less resource to begin with. So climate resiliency becomes even more important and pronounced for the rural sector. And therefore the transition to renewable energy is uh, not just inevitable, it has to be very urgent as well. I totally agree. And, and just thinking about all the risks associated with investing in an organization like yours, it takes a lot of bold leadership from you know the, the investors who, who have stuck with you and continue to invest in the organization. How important is the value alignment between your investors, call them impact investors, and yourself? What are you looking for in an investment and what's made a good partnership uh, for you over the time? It's a great question. So the value alignment is uh, even more pronounced when you are going through a rough period of which I think if almost every startup goes through, right? So when you hit a bump and when you are going to go through a major business pivot, uh, the investors and shareholders can lose their faith pretty quickly if the values are not aligned, which means if your North Star KPI is CO2 reductions, um, uh, in this case, economic, uh, activity proliferation in the villages that we serve and that a real problem is being addressed, right? It might take three more years than originally anticipated, but this problem will be tackled in the best way possible. Those alignments are absolutely essential uh, before you bring in a financial partner. So yes, financial returns are very important. Uh, at the same time, the the magnitude of the problem that we are trying to solve, right? And that it was never solved before. We need to get an alignment on those that this is a large problem, has not been attempted even by governments, or if they attempted, they failed. So you have to be a little patient and give us more leeway to be actually to, to fail. Because unless until you fail, not miserably, but you fail in few initiatives, you haven't really done your job, in my opinion. So those are the alignments that we had to get early on that, you know, we will try three things. It's likely that one of them will fail. And, and how, I guess, how did you start? I mean, you started with the micro, uh, you know, power systems, and then you, you scaled it up. Did you have, like, in flowing, in, I guess, incoming revenue first and then go out? Or did you, you know, did, I guess, did you raise a lot more capital to begin with? And and just had kind of the, the idea and the concept. Kind of tell me that balance when you first so started. It is both. So when we started and we really pioneered the mini grid as a sector. So when we started this, you know, uh, the, the, the small power plant and decentralized way of electrification in the rural parts of the world, mini grid as a term did not really exist. So when I used to pitch to investors, I had to, one slide was just dedicated to describing what a mini grid is. 
right? We have come a long way. I don't have to do that any longer. So, but before we went to, to investors, what we did as co-founders is we put our own money. And fortunately, because I was at Darden, we pissed at so many business plan competition. We also got uh, almost a quarter million dollars of free money by winning a lot of competitions. So we really utilized all those monies to build the first couple of power plants, showcase some of the things that we hypothesized in the beginning that these are working. And therefore now we can bring some additional capital from investors to take these two plants to let's say 20 or 30. So it was, a, it was in the beginning, our own money uh, followed by some absolutely grand capital to go from two to 10. When we went to 10, we raised series A investment, which was roughly $5 million to go from 10 to let's say 80. So it was, it was those steps, prove a few things, take the next money, prove more, take the next money and so on and so forth. It's really interesting. It's really interesting to me, like how people structure their companies, how they change over time. Um, and you know, it's just, it's just great to see the perseverance uh, over so many years of continuing to prove this concept and lift people out of poverty while decreasing you know, harm to the environment. When you, when you think about, I don't know if you have thought about it, I'm sure maybe you have, when you exit the organization, what's the legacy? What's the impact? you want to have so my personal uh, you know when i can walk away <laughs> uh, and do maybe solve the next big problem that i come across is that we would have impacted the lives of 10 million people across asia and africa in a significantly positive way that means i would have or we would have moved uh, the needle on on gdp per capita that i was talking about we would have moved needle on uh, energy consumption per capita. And equally importantly, we would have returned capital to investors that have uh, that have been investing in us for the last 10 years or so. So these are the things that I really want to happen uh, along the way. At the minimum, uh, these things for me personally to exit and maybe try to some, something else. As a company, I think we we want to impact at least 100 million people uh, over the next uh, decade or so, uh, and uh, uh, keep continuing this. This is this problem, like I said, impacts 3.5 billion people. That is no way. Uh, I think I can fix that in my lifetime, um, and maybe I can. I don't know, but it is not going to be a decade to fix the problem for a problem that impacts half the Earth's population. So hopefully, many more companies, uh, uh, you know. Uh, are formed and all of us combined solve this problem in my own lifetime. So those are my uh, long-term ambitions or aspirations. Uh, but my personal exit, if we can impact 10 million people, move the needle on GDP per capita and energy per capita and return the money, at least decent return to our investors, I think I'm, I'm, I will feel quite good and happy. It's inspiring. You know, I really admire it from a simple concept to now wanting to you know transform the lives of 10 million people let's bring this home Minaj. what is your definition of a real leader so as i, I i've been doing this this husk power systems thing for the last decade now uh, my personal uh, take on real leadership is uh, ability to identify 
real world problems that impacts a large chunk of population and the planet being able to take on it even if and when you don't know the exact solution to the problem but you take on the problem and apply the best you can in terms of your mental resource your network and corral uh, people around the world to be able to come with you to help solve that problem hopefully in your own lifetime uh, that would be a real leadership definition for me from Manoj Sinha, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, take on real problems and do whatever you can to solve them. And always, folks, keep it real. Thank you, Manoj. Thank you.